0: What's the deal with hell? We're in a series right now called Since You Asked. And what we're doing as a church, and we started last week, the five weeks after Easter, and these are at our welcome center. They're a great thing to grab and to to share with people because we're doing a series for five weeks based on a lot of the questions that not just the skeptics have, not just people who are distant from faith have, but maybe the questions that we have that we dare not ask anybody. Where you say, you know what, I've been a part of church, right, and I've been a part of faith my whole life, but when somebody asks me about heaven and hell, I don't have an answer at all. I don't know what to say. So people say, well, if you don't know the answer to that question, do you, do you really have a faith? Yes. And none of us have the answers to all of the questions, but what we're doing for five weeks is we're talking about what are the, what are the greatest questions that people have? What are some of them? Last week was Did Jesus really rise from the dead? I mean, if Easter is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, (laughs) what happens if there was no resurrection? Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that if the resurrection truly didn't happen, we, those who follow Jesus, are most to be pitied. That we have a hope that's placed on something that has no validity. Today, we're talking about what's the deal with hell. Next week is, isn't hope big enough already? Where well, We're going to look at what, who are we as a church? What are we called to as a church? And I'll give you the very Cliff Notes answer. The answer isn't about, about a size. That's nothing that we've ever shot for. But we believe that God is doing something powerful and something mighty in this place for whatever reason. Despite all of the people who are on staff here, God continues to move. And did you hear in Hope 360 that over the course of Lent, 40 days taking out the Sundays that led from Ash Wednesday to Easter, did you hear how many churches were able to start in Western Africa? We put out a goal of 75 churches. And as a church, you raised $688,000, were given. Which will be able to start 172 churches, which will be able to bring the gospel, the good news, the story of Jesus Christ, into places in this world that that haven't heard the good news before. They aren't, they aren't able to do what you and I are able to do right now. They don't have the choice whether or not they're going to go to church, despite whether we should be building an ark or not. This is just not an option. So we're able to to be a part of what God's doing in the world. Then the week after that is how can we pass on faith to our kids? And a real treat, that Sunday night, I'm going to be preaching with my dad. So if there's any way to kill the faith in your kids, it's to have to write a sermon with your dad, which is always fun. (laughs) No, it's a blast. I love doing it. And then the last week in May 20th and 21st is going to be just a ball. Where we're literally doing an open Q&A during the sermon. You have questions, ask them anonymously. There'll be baskets you can write down. We'll we'll give you cards. Write down whatever question you have. And we'll just spend the time. And we literally, we're not going to be like having some like canned questions just in case the ones that you give us are too difficult. No, we're just going to read a card and we're going to answer it the best we can. Because we believe that sometimes the questions we have are the things that stand in the way of our ability to have faith. And so rather than shying away from them, we're going to press into them. Because the temptation, and I'll be honest with you, the temptation is to shy away from them. I didn't want to spend this whole week studying hell. wasn't exactly the, 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 the best idea. It, every day I would come home and I would talk to Bridget, my wife, and she'd say, how was work? And I was like, well, it was another day in hell. You know, I mean, that's what I was studying. I was up to my eyeballs in hell. It was funny because I was talking to her parents earlier in the week. They live six miles south of Canada. And I was talking to her parents last week and last week they got six inches or four inches of snow. And I was talking to her mom about this series that we're doing and she said, you know, people often say that hell is a place that's really hot. I think hell is really cold in April. Hell to me isn't a fiery uh, eternity. Hell to me is getting snow when we shouldn't have snow. It kind of feels like that outside right now. I was talking to one of my neighbors uh, on Thursday afternoon, and I I sat down next to him in his driveway. He said, oh, how's it going? I said, good. How are things going? Good. And we started making small talk, and I looked at him, I said, James, what do you think about hell? He said, is this your new way of trying to get me to come to church? (laughs) which unfortunately maybe is a way that somebody tried to get you to come to church. Start getting to the real meat of it. There's an approach, and I believe the, the importance of talking about this and how, why this is such a central question, is because unfortunately, when a lot of us think about faith and a lot of us think about God and a lot of us think about Jesus, and a lot of us think about why would I be involved in something like this, it becomes, pardon the pun, it becomes more of fire insurance than anything else. Because somewhere along the way, somebody has told us that if we don't do the right things or somehow if, 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 if we would make God angry or we wouldn't please God, then what what our eternity is bound to is hell. That's where we get phrases like you need to turn or burn that somehow if I don't turn and I don't give my life to Jesus Christ and I don't do it in the right way in the right setting with the right people who can hear the right things that if I don't do all of those things, then God's punishment and God's desire and God's will for my life is that I would spend eternity in hell. And we get this picture and this idea of a God who is incredibly angry which I don't mean to give you the end at the beginning, but I'm gonna give you the end at the beginning. God's not angry. God isn't angry with you. God isn't hiding around some corner like it sh- showed in that, that clip from The Good Place, uh, taking a, 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 an inventory of every single action that you do in your life and, and waiting to see just when does your life scale kind of tip the balance to a place where you're irredeemable? You're not salvageable any longer, that you're a hopeless cause, because a lot of us along the way have had somebody tell us that maybe the best that we have to hope for is a life that's destined to hell. So it's important for us to get a, a good perspective. And, and for some of us, it's going to be really freeing. And for some of us, it's going to be a little bit troubling, not because, not because somehow I'm going to flip the script and say, well, good luck because you're destined to that. But some of us have this hardwired so firmly in our brain that we can't think of God another way been talking to a lot of people all throughout different segments of life this week asking what are the common questions that you have what do you want to know if you had the opportunity to ask a question about hell what would you want to know these were people who said does hell exist yeah it does it would be false it would not be faithful if we somehow came to worship and 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 convinced ourselves that it really doesn't matter because everybody just goes to the same place anyways. Where is hell? I don't know. I'll tell you when I get... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what the Bible tells us is it's the opposite of heaven. What is hell like? We'll look at that a little bit later. And What, what, what does the Bible say about this? Why does God send people to hell? It's an important question. Because if God is good and God is love, then why does a good God who is loving, what's the deal with that? If I'm in control and I'm the one who oversees and rules over everything, then why what I do? It's, it's an important question. And I want to give you the answer right now because I'm really impatient, but we'll wait just a little bit. And how do I avoid hell? Important thing as we do this is we kind of keep our focus in the right space. When I was in college, uh, there was a, a friend of mine who lived down the hall from me. It was towards the end of the fir- my first year of college. And uh, it was spring and he, I, I thought, I thought because he was a person of faith and he knew that I was a person of faith. Sunday mornings I would get up, I'd go to my car, I would drive to our church because my home church was in the next uh, city to, to where I went to college. It was literally like a 10 and a half minute drive for me to get to, to, to church. So I'd go almost every Sunday because that was just a part of my life and I, and I actually really liked church. It was a church like this where it was upbeat and we talked about good things and like hell. But anyways, and so I thought that he was asking me to go to this play that was being put on in town because it was something that we had in common. I said, well, what's the play about? And he said, well, it's about heaven and hell. And I thought, well, that sounds great. And we went there and I sat down and I started watching these actors portraying all of these scenes. And each I guess you could call it act or segment, was two similar situations. You'd have two groups of people, and one group of people we could say was making a good choice, and the other group of people were making choices that we could say weren't the wisest choice. I remember one of them. I remember one of them so clearly. Maybe it was because I was in college. But it was, uh, it was two college-age kids that were at a party and one student chose to drink and the other cho- student chose not to drink. And it showed them driving home at the end of the party and their cars colliding and one of them went to heaven and the other one went to hell. And I remember Thinking to myself, boy, this doesn't seem like the Jesus I know. Another one was a situation of, of a kid that told his dad that he didn't have the courage to stand in front of the church and profess his faith, ver- faith verbally. The kid died and he was brought to hell. And I, thought, I looked at my friend and I said, does this seem a little extreme to you? And his response back to me was, Jeremy, somebody has to give an account for your life at some point. And I realized that he wasn't bringing there, me there because we were f- friends who shared faith. He had brought me there because he wanted me to make a decision. Sure enough, at the end of the play, there was a person that got up in front of that place and said, if you want your life to end up the way you want it to, you need to come up here right now and profess your faith in Jesus Christ. And then he said, but if you don't, you better be very wary of what you do from this point on. I got back to my dorm and I called my parents. I was so upset because the God that I knew the Jesus that I had heard about, the stories that I was familiar with weren't stories about a God who <laughs> gave up on people. Called my, I called my parents. I, I, I talked to my dad, who's, who's a pastor, and I, I said, dad, dad, what's going on? I said, Jeremy, unfortunately, fear is used as a motivator in the wrong places. And fear is never a good motivator for faith. Fear is never a good motivator for relationships, is it? (laughs) How many relationships have you been in that you've been forced to be in and where relationships have been healthy? When I was teaching high school English, we would do the the book To Kill a Mockingbird. It's written by Harper Lee. It's written in the time before the civil rights movement had happened it was taking place uh, in the south where there was a huge segregation that existed between people of a different color than people who were caucasian there's a story about a little girl by the name of scout and scout uh, has a brother by the name of Jem, and they have a dad by the name of atticus and and their mother had passed away and Atticus, Scout's dad, is, is, is a lawyer. And there is a black man in their town who is accused of a crime. And Harper, Harper Lee talks about how Atticus, the dad, defends the man, which in this community, in that, in, in that community, in that age, in that era, wasn't acceptable. So Scout, this young girl, starts to notice that there are a lot of people who are doing a lot of hateful things to them as a family. And there's a neighbor lady. Her name is Miss Maddie. And Miss Maddie is kind of a motherly, a grandmotherly figure to these two little kids. So Scout goes up to Miss Maddie one day and says, Miss Maddie, what's the deal? Because some of the people who were the angriest at her family were those who were the most religious. And Miss Mahdi says to to Scout, Scout, the Bible in the hand of one man can be worse than a bottle of bourbon in the hand of another. It all depends on what you intend to do with it. St. Augustine, one of the fathers in the church, says the whole Bible, the narrative of Scripture, cover to cover, does nothing but tell of God's great love. Not as hate. C.S. Lewis talks about the the perspective and the focus that we need to hold in balance when we follow Jesus. C.S. Lewis himself was an atheist who comes to faith. And C.S. Lewis writes incredible works that deal with evil and deal with hell and deal with the devil. One of them is a book called The Screwtape Letters. It's a fictional piece that's highly fascinating, an incredible read. Another is called The Great Divorce A Life Apart from God. But even C.S. Lewis says there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence, that's not helpful. It's not helpful and it's not biblical. But the other, which sometimes we tend to fall victim to, is to believe and to feel an unhealthy and excessive interest in them, where they become the focus. So what does the Bible say? What does the Bible tell us about hell? Well, that word didn't translate well. This word is supposed to be a Hebrew word that didn't go through our uh, software. It did in the chapel this morning, so I apologize for that, but it's Sheol. And Sheol, we see a a passage in Psalm 55, verse 15. Sometimes it's translated as hell. Other times it's translated as Sheol, and other times it's translated as the grave. 64 times in the Old Testament, Sheol literally talks about the place where a person is buried, But what it does is it it, it elicits a picture in other places as in Psalm 55 where it talks about an eternity that's apart from God, where there's misery, where there's pain, where there's anguish. Hades is, uh, when we get to the New Testament, see it Luke 10, Luke 16, it's very common in the New Testament. Hades itself also is used and translated as hell, but it's also a place Where we see that there's pain, there's anguish, and a place that people end up if they're apart from God. The most common and the most descriptive is this word right here, and it says Gehenna. And Gehenna, what it literally is, is it's referring to a place just outside of Jerusalem. The holy city in Jerusalem, there was this valley just on the outside that people would throw and they would dispose of the bodies that were not claimed after they died. Remember the story when, when Jesus was put to death on the cross, how many people were next to him? One on both sides, right? And those two were criminals who had been found guilty and deserved to be punished for their, for their crime. They even say that on the cross. The one of them says to the other, we deserve to be here right now. And in this time, and in that culture, if you were somebody who was a criminal or did something to shame your family, your family would distance themselves from you so that they didn't get linked to you. So we can assume that these two criminals on the cross, when their bodies took their final rest and they were taken down... That nobody would have been there to claim them. And so they would be thrown out into this place, Gehenna. There's an Old Testament reference to it, because in this place, Jeremiah 7, in this place, there used to be gods that were worshiped, and these awful kings would literally sacrifice children's bodies to these. So this place was. It was a a hell. And this is the word 11 times in the Gospels. Jesus talks about it would be like going to Gehenna, where it would be surrounded in darkness, and there would be a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. That's what it's like. When we look at the Bible and we ask ourselves the question, what, what is hell like? There's a distance to it. When the Bible talks about heaven, sometimes it will use uh, the vantage point above. Psalm 121, I look to the hills. From where does my hope come from? My help comes from God. See in the Gospels, Jesus talks, my Father who's above. Colossians chapter 3, set your eyes on things above Where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. So, the language that's used for hell is sometimes below. God, in the scriptures, when God is personal, God is near or God is close. Jesus talks about Gehenna, he talks about it's the outer darkness, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Have you ever done anything in your life where you got done doing it and what you just did, you can't believe you just did it and you reflect on it and you have this expression that you go, oh, snashing your teeth. So what Jesus says, this is what, hell, this is what hell is like. And how many of us don't know what that experience is like? Just on a, on a human level, we're like, oh, oh. What is it like? Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are in the garden. This is the place that God had, had made for them. And God says that there's one rule and there's one about to stay in relationship with me. You don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do it, your eyes will be open and it will kill you. And they eat the fruit. And immediately after they eat it, their eyes are opened. And they notice their nakedness. And they're ashamed. Where there was no shame, now there is shame. Where there was no false sense of self, now there's a false sense of self. They're aware of their humanity and they start to become aware. There's a false narrative that says that there's something about them that should be hidden told this story before but it's the best picture that I have of it I remember uh, my, my wife and I we, we used to sing songs to our kids in the car all the time and our kids would start to sing along with us and for us it was the most beautiful sound of any sound that could ever be even if they weren't good singers just to hear the voice of their the sound of their voice in song would just brought joy to our hearts literally would drive around and I would move the rearview mirror so I could watch them while I drove which was really great as a father really terrible as a driver and I remember the first time I would start to sing, my son would start to sing with me. And I remember the first time that he was singing, I would trail off, he'd be singing by himself. I remember the first time that he was singing by himself and he noticed me watching him in the mirror and he turned his face away and he was embarrassed. And I remember thinking to myself, buddy, whoever told you that there was something about you that you should be ashamed of? It's not just an eternal thing, is it? I mean, I think a lot of us experience hell on earth as well, don't we? Where we're hurt or where we hurt. Where we're confronted. And I don't even need to say more than that with the brokenness of life that's a glimpse of hell on earth. So who goes? Big question. Gets to the why does a good God send people to hell? I don't say this flippantly, I don't say this in a callous way, and I don't say this to try to be funny. God doesn't send people. God doesn't. Hell is a result of choosing to reject God. In thought, word, and deed. That's not a threat. Please don't hear it as that. That is not a threat because when we look at, When we look at the narrative of scripture, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and they go off and they hide themselves because they're aware of their nakedness, if the end of the story was they made a bad choice and because they made a bad choice, their destiny was sealed, if that was the nature and the character of God, our scriptures would end in Genesis chapter 3, but it doesn't, does it? It continues on. Because throughout the course of history, what God has done has pursued his creation to bring them back into a relationship with him. This is the narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we need to maintain our focus on. Because there is a hell. Because there is a reality both from an eternal perspective and also here and now where we experience the brokenness and the distance from God that we weren't created to live. But here's the good news. So that wasn't okay with God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish. That death, that sin, that evil would not have the final word. It wouldn't have the final answer. That God would have the final answer. John 3, 17, for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it. God didn't send his son in the world to be angry and to be hateful and to make people make a decision that either you turn or you burn and that's the best that you have to offer. So you need to do it right here and right now. And if you don't, God, have mercy on your soul. No, God is pursuing us every single step of our lives, wanting us to be in a relationship with him, not because he's jealous, not because he's angry, but because he's loving because he's a good God who gives good gifts, who wants the best for for each person in all of humanity. I mean, once we can get it in our minds that every single person that has ever been born in this world, every single person, not just the people who were born in Christian households, not just the people who were born in the United States of America, not just the people who think like I do, who believe like I do, every person in the history of humanity is loved by God. I used to ask my dad the question all the time, especially when I was mad at my sister. So-and-so, do they go to heaven or do they go to hell? I wanted to know. You'd see a news story and somebody uh, would pass away and, and somebody who maybe, from a cultural perspective, we would say, didn't live a Christian life. I'd say, Dad, what about them? Are they going to heaven or are they going to hell? I wanted to know. And every single time, I thought it was to frustrate me, but it was because he believed in a God who was loving. He said, I thank God that I'm not God, and I thank God that he is God. Because he's more loving, and his justice is greater than I could have ever done myself. See, we get ourselves into a little bit of a sticky situation when we become the judges and the juries for other people's lives. When we start to put boundaries on the limits of God's love. Do not have a God who is angry. We have a God who is loving. So Ephesians chapter 2, you say, well, how do I avoid it? How do I make sure? How do I avoid? How do I make sure? How do I get the assurance? How do I avoid a life? How can how can I have certainty in this? Paul writes about it in Ephesians chapter two. It's grace. It's grace. You say, well, Jim, it's too easy. It's too simple. I mean, you got to let people know what the penalty is because if they don't know what the penalty is, how are you going to make sure that they make the It's not my job. It's not my job. You heard it right at the beginning. I believe that there is a hell, and I believe that sometimes people will make a choice to reject the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. I believe that. I'm certain of that. But as you heard in the song in of the offering, we have a champion who's come to fight, who's already won the victory. Don't for a minute think that that battle has not been won. It has. It's been won in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it's by grace, it's by grace that you have been saved Through faith. And this isn't anything that you've done, Paul says, lest anyone should boast about it. It's a gift, it's a free gift. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. It's a person in my life who just found out, just in the last week, that they, at best, maybe four months to live. And it's so hard for me. But one of the things that was amazing is in a conversation with this person, this person is, if we're going to look at years, has lived a long life. I mean, so that's the good part. Over 80 years old, it's great, it's wonderful. But one thing this person said, which was just so incredible, is in the last six months of their life, they found out what grace was. This person said, I've spent the whole entirety of my life feeling like I was on the outside looking in. And through the grace of Jesus Christ, I realized door has been swung open that this love of Jesus Christ it wins the day every time see Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 5 it's not about what we do <laughs> it's not about what we have done it says but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us when while we were still sinners. Other translations of scripture will say, While we were still far away, God sent His Son into the world to die. What good news! Think about it. The death of Jesus Christ. Criminal on one hand, a criminal on the other. I was thinking about this this week. One of the criminals looks at Jesus. I mean, he has moments left in his life. I mean, he's, he's dying. And he says, Jesus, remember me. I started to think to myself this week, remember what? I mean, if it's all about us making the decision, if it's all about, about us making the right moves, and if it's all about us doing the right things, what is this guy asking Jesus to Remember? remember that at one point in my life when I was little and my, my parents were bringing me up in the Jewish faith Jesus remember me And that point in my life and yeah sure I've gone astray for a couple of years but, but remember, no because if it's his own deal as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6 for all of us have sinned Jesus says, the, the, the beggar says Jesus remember me because Jesus I believe that even you could love me Jesus I believe that you have a place for me God showed his love that while we were still sinners Christ came to die and was raised to a new and to an everlasting life so we can have the certainty and the assurance that death and sin and evil and hell has no answer for us you say oh how do I get it Just believe in him. Just believe. Belief doesn't mean you have the whole thing figured out. I mean, it's faith. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that we can't see. By nature, faith elicits doubt. Give yourself a break. Believe that he could love you. And his love is for you. And he sent his son to die for you so that you may have life now and throughout all of eternity. Jesus Christ is enough. It's in Christ alone. It's not our good works. It's not what we've done. It's in Christ alone that our hope is found. It's in Christ alone. Amen.